Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Welcome to the second episode of Ejo, the podcast. Even better if I can say welcome back to our conversation about international law aspects of contemporary issues. In our first podcast, we discussed COVID-19 and we focused on the international human rights implications. By the way, did you notice that a week after our discussion, UN Secretary General Guterres declared COVID-19 a human rights crisis? We ended our first discussion with Arundhati Roy's vision of this pandemic as a portal to a new world and with the question whether it might also lead to a new international law. Historically, pandemics have changed the way the world is governed. In a recent blog, Alex de Waal has observed how after the Black Death in 1348, the first passports were issued, health cards, which Italian city-states issued to traders and diplomats. Several centuries later, European powers used the threat of cholera for preemptive intervention in the Ottoman Empire. De Waal argues that public health is never only about public health. Just like war making, and note the frequent invocation of a war on the virus, public health is also about state and community building. Perhaps we should also see in this light the UN Secretary General's recent invocation of the fight against COVID-19 as the raison d'être of the United Nations. But the international organization that has been most in the limelight in the fight against corona thus far has not been the UN, but the World Health Organization. People, including politicians, have been looking at this Geneva-headquartered organization for guidance or for diverting blame. In our first episode, we promised we would invite an international lawyer with expertise in international health law. We have more than that. With Gianluca Burci, adjunct professor at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, we also have a former legal counsel of the World Health Organization. Welcome, Gianluca. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And also here are the EGIL, the podcast hosts, voices you may already be familiar with, but for in case you're not, here they are. Hi, I'm Dapo Akande, Professor of Public International Law at the University of Oxford, and I'm in Oxford. Hi, I'm Marco Milanovic, Professor of International Law at the University of Nottingham. I'm in Belgrade. Hi, I'm Philippa Webb, Professor of Public International Law at King's College London, and I'm in London. Hi, and I'm Sarah, reader in international law in Cambridge, and I'm at the moment close to Cambridge. And I'm also an editor-in-chief of the European Journal of International Law. Gianluca, when you were at the WHO, were pandemics such as these something that you prepared for? And was there an international law aspect to that preparation? So as you know, WHO is uh, so much the, the target of criticism now, but uh, on this account, I think the record shows that WHO has been uh, warning the world for a long time uh, that the pandemic like this was not a matter of if, was a matter of when. And in particular, that this pandemic would have a zoonotic origin, a pathogen to jump from animal to humans. And that's exactly what happened. So WHO has been in a way, preparing for this from different perspectives. Uh, the first is the regulatory one, and in particular, the fact that WHO is a manager, if you want, and the custodian of the international health regulations. 
being a constitutional instrument, is very embedded in the whole function for WHO. So they're not just the programs that deal with infectious diseases, but also those that deal, for example, with um, uh, public health system strengthening or universal health coverage has something to contribute to the protection against epidemics. The other aspect, and that's quite recent, is the operational aspect. WHO has never been an implementing or operational agency. That's not what its member states wanted it to be. It's a normative agency, policy setting, advising governments, and so on. But after Ebola, the criticism against WHO was such that WHO had to set up an emergency program. Uh, and that's not an easy, for those of you who know so institutional sociology, how difficult it is to superimpose a brand new function on a body that was not uh, basically structured for that. So Gianluca, I think in response to a crisis like this, that international lawyers and I think many others immediately have the urge to say, well, what we need in response is more regulation. But regulation is often about a shared standard or a shared approach about uniformity. And can that be expected in a world with such inequality, especially when it comes to healthcare provision? I remember a quote from the Ethiopian Prime Minister Ahmed Abiye, who commented something along the lines that, you know, even hand washing is not available to half of his population because half of the population doesn't have access to clean water. And similarly, with these types of measures such as lockdowns, um, I think it was De Waal as well who wrote something like in many people across the world, they prefer the lottery of um, corona to the certainty of starvation. Is there scope for more regulation in a world that is so unequal and so diverse? And in what areas could universal regulation do more? I think there is a need for the right kind of regulation, not necessarily for something more stringent if it doesn't sort of meet the test of compliance. But what is needed, I think, and COVID shows it graphically, is uh, a more strategic investment in what will prevent the recurrence of this disaster. And you mentioned correctly how different and how unequal sometimes public health systems are, both within the same country and across countries. And that's true. And that's one probably one of the main challenges, because the, uh, the, the new health regulations actually require, as a matter of legal obligation, countries to have what we call core capacities to perform surveillance, detection, control, prevention. And this is not just the laboratory in the airport. This is a public health system. So from that point of view, it's a pretty intrusive instruments. And it's proved very challenging. Many developed countries are not meeting that test. But the point is, and there was an interesting article, I believe, on the New York Times a couple of days ago, that African countries that are perfectly aware that don't have a, a healthcare system that can sort of resist the shocks are adopting other strategies. For example, aggressive testing and very early lockdowns. And that's a way to prevent and control, because if you can detect the first cases, you prevent spread. You contact, you, you trace the contacts, and you can contain. And that's what Italy, what France, what Spain, what the UK, what the United States have been unable to do, even though they had much better health system. So it's true, there is diversity, but there are some um, elements and there is a menu of public health responses that can in a way, uh, counterbalance this diversity and this inequality. Gianluca, can I pitch in? If you were now the, the, the WHO Council, uh, as you used to be, 
what exactly would you be doing in this moment? So what is the lawyer's job in the WHO now? I think there are two roles. The first is obviously advising and managing the existing law. And frankly, the international health regulations has been sidelined. Uh, it disappeared from even WHO's own narrative since early February. So if I were the legal counsel, I would be strongly advocating with the Director General that we need to re-inject the regulations back into the management of the pandemic. Otherwise, you have this paradox of, you know, we have a bind legal instrument that makes all the difference and then it disappears and the manager of the instrument, does it even say, is still playing a role. And second, I would try to play the prophetic legal counsel and strongly advocate for things that should be changed in the future. This is obviously is a political choice and goes way beyond the role of a legal counsel. But I think the legal counsel has a duty uh, to raise the big gaps and to try to advocate uh, future changes. Gianluca, so you talked about the international health regulations and you said it's a binding legal instrument. Can you just explain to us how it is binding, first of all, in, in what, um, by which I mean, is it a treaty? What is it? So the uh, regulations are based on the constitutions. They are not, in my view, even though there was a lively debate in my former office, they are not a treaty. Uh, they are not based on Pacta Sunt Servanda. The legal basis is Article 21 and 22 of the Constitution. They provide that, first of all, they are legally binding. Second, they are adopted by the Health Assembly. They are like a unilateral decision by an international organs. And third, that unlike treaties, they enter into force for all member states except those that opt out, that reject. So it's the opposite of a treaty. But the, leg yeah. the legal basis is a constitutional WHO. And, and in this particular case, you know, there's been a lot of um, argument about whether China actually acted in breach of its obligations under the international health regulations. So if we were going to go with that, that argument, what exactly or what, if anything, was done wrong by China or what should have been done differently to, uh, to comply with obligations under the international health regulations? Well... Two things. The first is that it seems by now fairly accepted by everybody except China, that China knew, at, at least at the local level, of the spread of atypical pneumonia and the growing number of cases and even the first signs of human-to-human -human transmission much earlier than they notified WHO. So in that sense, the China can be considered in breach of the, of the regulations because every country must assess health events that happen in the territory, they reach a certain level of gravity, literally check the boxes, and then notify WHO. China didn't do it. So in that sense, you can argue that China did breach its obligation under the IHR. At the same time, let's be very frank, China is very busy controlling and rewriting the narrative. There's nothing too small for China to intervene. And so in a matter of months or a few years, frankly, the only narrative it will have, it will be China's narrative. Since attribution of responsibility or finding a breach of law is also heavily fact-based, we need evidence for the facts. And the evidence, frankly, especially the evidence preceding the 31st of December 2019, is disappearing. Yeah. I mean, so this is an, uh, the obligation to notify, and maybe they didn't do it at the time when they ought to have done it, but they, they still did it early in January, which presumably um, was well before other states started to respond and, and take measures. 
Is there anything else that one might argue that China did in breach of their obligations under the international health regulations? Well, the two main obligations are, as I said, assessment, prompt notification, and cooperation with WHO in the sense of providing in transparency and good faith all the data and analysis that you have at your disposal that can help WHO doing its assessment of the risk and performing its functions. China... Um, arguably became much more transparent. And very importantly, they posted the genome of the virus um, on a public database very early on. And so they preempted criticism that they didn't share the virus. And so they basically prevented the other countries from starting looking at diagnostics and so on. The point is, how genuine was China? The big controversy is when China did, when did China know that there was human to human transmission? Because that was the, the qualitative change. And there was uncertainty until late January. But anyway, you need to prove that China knew and either negligently or willfully did not disclose. And who got in the middle of all of it is WHO, that now is accused of being complicit with China, being to pander into China, not having diligent, and so on. So again, it's very heavily fact-based, and you need evidence for the facts. So that's very interesting. I mean, and, and it sort of leads us into a broader set of questions about compliance and enforcement. You know, when you do, when you design an institution, uh, whether that's the WHO or I know the International Atomic Energy Agency or the Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons, how do you ensure that the facts are known? I mean, just think of all the controversies about the uses of chemical weapons in Syria and who gets to make those findings and how politicized that became within the OPCW and so on. Um, so can you say something about uh, the sort of enforcement mechanisms in the um, uh, within the international health regulations and the WHO constitution, and to what extent do you think they are fit for purpose and to what extent they are deficient? There is not really much in terms of enforcement, uh, and that is not... Uh, WHO's negligence, it's the design of the regulation. Countries did not, want, did not want to have another IAEA or PCW in the field of health. So, the, uh, and there's not even a clear system of compliance assessment and monitoring built into the instrument. That to me was a major oversight during the very quick revision uh, in 2004-2005. So that's def definitely a, a, a weak part. So the question is, can this be strengthened? I don't see countries rushing to give WHO more tools to enforce the law. But at the very least, there should be a non-antagonistic, uh, non-judgmental, if you want, system of compliance monitoring that can detect gaps, that can detect pattern of compliance, a managerial approach that doesn't immediately imply bad will, but may imply the lack of resources. And so the need for assistance, the need to prioritize actions, also the national level and so on. To me, there, there is space for improvement. Uh, but again, WHO was never conceived as an OPCW, as an AEA. And its DNA, its corporate culture is very much cooperation, dialogue, and uh, working together with national agencies. Gianluca, your focus is immediately, and also understandably, uh, on how can the WHO be strengthened. Others seem to be focusing on how can the WHO be weakened in the sense that you know, we've seen U.S. President Trump withholding money from uh, the WHO in the middle of the pandemic. And there are also lots of lawyers now talking about can the WHO 
be held responsible? Has there been a dereliction of duty on, on the part of the WHO? Has it been, to use other people's words, been sucking up to China? Is it complicit in the suppression of facts, as so the allegations go? Do you think that there's any ground for saying that the WHO has violated a norm of international law? So if WHO has violated norms of international law, again, it boils down to the international health regulation. It has rather clear functions under the regulations. And if you want to test uh, its performance in terms of accountability or even responsibility, I think that's a starting point. That is also, again, uh, pretty based on facts and on the fact that WHO relies heavily on the cooperation and the information it receives from countries, in this case, China. So, yes, there was an element of dependency on China. The regulations are very innovative in the sense that they give WHO the possibility of using other sources. So to bypass the state, internet sources, other international organizations, NGOs, and so on. But again, with a country with a level of social and political control like China, where even the internet is self-contained and cut off from the rest of the world, it's very difficult to say with any... Uh, any measure of seriousness that WHO had at its disposal alternative information that he could have used and should have used. Whether WHO performed its analysis that it should have, this frankly I think that go beyond my pay grade and I'm sure they will be investigated after the pandemic. Did WHO uh, prove a bit too, 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 too friendly with China? Yeah, I think so. I think that WHO went a bit too out of the way in praising China every step of the way. There must be a reason for that. Um, and my colleagues are serious professional. Dr. Tedros is a serious politician and leader. So it's also a matter of ensuring China's cooperation. China has its own political priorities. And cooperating with WHO may not be a priority if there are countervailing arguments. So there may have been an element of political realism in making sure that China was prepared to go along with emergencies and to cooperate because China was not very happy that it was finger-pointed. And so if there was this kind of friendliness, it might also be due to an element of political realism, which I don't think it's illegitimate or unjustifiable. I like it, though, how now, uh, how at one point you said, you know, we want it to be managerial, technocratic, you know, we want to make it, a, you know, health is a, is, a, is a problem to be solved. But now suddenly you said, ah, well, political, that, that's, that's perfectly legitimate. And say in the chemical weapons context or the IAEA, you know, we inevitably know it's going to be political. So why do we think it's going to be different with the WHA or should it be different with the WHA? Yeah, I think it's an illusion. You cannot take politics out of politics. Uh, and also, but it's a very strong self-identity, self-perception of WHO. If you talk to my colleagues in total good faith and total conviction, they will tell you we are not a political agency. We are a technical agency. If you want to do politics, go to the, to the New England, New York. We do public health. But I think they sort of erase out of that picture the heavy politics of public health, and in particular in a situation like COVID, which goes way beyond health. It involves some fairly heavy-duty existential issues of, of politics, of national politics, international security, and so on. Well, that brings us beautifully back to the beginning about public health being the politics also of state building, of organization building, of, of community building. In the previous podcast, we observed that international lawyers are perhaps not essential workers. We're all working from home. At the same time, if we've been following the news, we can see that they've been pretty busy and in part with their favorite job, which is holding 
people, organizations, states accountable. There's such an outcry about what is happening that, of course, there is this innate urge for accountability. We have to hold somebody accountable. And we already refer to President Trump accusing the WHO. What kind of accountability claims do we see? And most of all, or the starting point for international lawyers is always, where do you bring them? One of the questions that has been animating international lawyers and others is whether or not a case might be brought against China for violating the international health regulations that Gianluca talked about, particularly the obligation to notify, which it may not have done in time, and particularly to notify the human-to-human transmission. But the question with um, taking cases to international courts and tribunals is that you need consent. And China is not a state that readily consents to the jurisdiction of international courts. However, one argument that has been made is that there might be a way to bring a case against China using the WHO constitution. I think Gianluca told us earlier that uh, the international health regulations were adopted under Articles 21 and 22 of the WHO constitution. The WHO constitution is a treaty, and it does have a dispute settlement clause, I think it's Article 75, that provides that any uh, question or any dispute concerning the interpretation or application of the WHO constitution shall eventually be referred to the ICJ if not settled by negotiation. So then the question is, how might one be able to argue that a breach of the international health regulations um, qualifies as a dispute under this dispute settlement clause of the of the WHO. I think perhaps the best argument is one that is a bit similar actually to the UN Charter. So when we think about the UN Charter and we think about Security Council resolutions under the UN Charter, generally speaking, Security Council obligations under Security Council resolutions are deemed to be obligations under the Charter. And the question is, can you say that an obligation under the international health regulations is an obligation under the WHO constitution in the same way? And if that's correct, that then brings you to the WHO constitution. Of course, the issue would then be which state (laughs) would bring a case against uh, China and how do you deal with with that issue. There's a political question as to who actually wants to do it. And then there'd be all the normal issues about, is there a dispute? You know, is it an obligation that's owed to that particular state, etc., etc. Okay, can I be a party pooper for a moment? You always are. <laughs> all right, yeah, thank you. So, I mean, okay, fine. You know, it's a plausible argument, the one you just set up, yeah. right? That violating the international health regulations is a violation of the WHO constitution, and that uh, uh, the, the ICJ would have jurisdiction if there was a state that brought the case. Fine. Okay. Can you imagine any constellation of the current International Court of Justice finding that China not just violated a technical obligation to notify, which I think we can all agree, you know, it probably didn't do promptly, but that some consequences flow from that? In particular, that China would say have the consequence to compensate some states or some other entities. There's just no way in hell the International Court of Justice would do that. It's just not going to happen. So, I mean, they didn't do it in like the much more sort of obvious, you know, cases where there is much more direct sort of responsibility of a state. Think the Bosnia genocide case where the only remedy that the court awarded was a declaration that Serbia failed to prevent 
genocide in Srebrenica. The only thing they did there was a declaratory remedy. To, to, to sort of fantasize, as some people do, not you, Dapa, that the ICJ is somehow going to, you know, do a cavalry run and, and finger point China and say, China, you have to pay billions. It's just, it's just fantasy. It's just not going to happen. As, and legally, it probably shouldn't happen because there are serious causality issues in, you know, here. Like, so from whatever damage, you know, you can say that but for China's uh, a, a lack of prompt notification, it could have you know, happened that the pandemic would not uh, would not have occurred or, 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 or that the, the, you know, its impact would have been less. But there were so many decisions that so many other states made or did not make on when to institute lockdowns, how to do contact tracing, how to do testing that have nothing to do with China. And these states had ample opportunities to act, but did not act. And it's just impossible legally, in my view, to blame China for all these antecedent uh, consequences that followed from the pandemic. So, so I mean, I personally, I just think it's fruitless, this type of uh, uh, effort. It really doesn't do much uh, uh, to, to sort of threaten litigation against China before the ICJ. Well, quite a few lawyers seem to be looking at a parallel form, another form. Rather than looking up to the ICJ, they're looking at domestic courts. And one wonders, is that going to succeed? Uh, Philippa, I mean, you know everything about fruitless domestic proceedings because of a certain law we have in international law. <laughs> Not because of my practice, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, at least six lawsuits have been filed in the US uh, for trillions of dollars against China and its authorities. Uh, and I think they are going to face a steep uphill battle to overcome immunity. Uh, so there's at least three uh, exceptions to immunity that these uh, lawsuits might be invoking, but all of them face big challenges. So the first is the commercial activity exception, which is in customary international law and also under uh, the US statute. But that requires not only showing that China's actions were commercial and not sovereign, which would be very difficult to show, but also in the US it requires a specific nexus to US jurisdiction. That's not a requirement under other legislation, such as in the UK for their commercial activity, but in the US, they're very protective of that jurisdictional connection. And given that uh, these allegations of cover-up uh, or leaking uh, of, of the uh, virus itself are all related to actions on Chinese territory, it would be hard to see how that requirement would be fulfilled. The second possible exception is the territorial tort exception. This is where there is a death or personal injury or damage or loss to property caused by an act or omission in the territorial state. And it might sometimes also require that the perpetrator of the act is also on the territory. It depends on the specific legislation. Once again, we've got a real jurisdictional nexus hurdle. In the US, they've approached this exception by requiring that the entire tort occurred on US territory. There's also exceptions specific to US legislation that exclude uh, this non-immunity for any claim arising out of misrepresentation or deceit. So any claims based on China covering up would not be covered by this exception on based on territorial tort. 
And finally, I've seen some of the US lawsuits trying to invoke the state sponsor of terrorism exception. The challenge with that is that current uh, US legislation only specifies four states as sponsors of terrorism, which are North Korea, Iran, Sudan and Syria, not China. Some US politicians are pushing for China to be added to that list or for there to be similar legislation for China, but that would have to be retroactive and of course would cause huge political fallout. John Bellinger, a former US legal advisor, has written very strongly saying that it would be a huge mistake to pass such legislation and diplomatic pressure would be a much better route. And apart from action against the Chinese state itself, the Missouri Attorney General is suing the Chinese Communist Party and arguing it's not entitled to immunity. Now, typically, the definition of a state covers its organs and federal units and, to an extent, agencies and instrumentalities. It doesn't usually cover political parties. But China is a party state. And if we look at the 2018 amendments to Article 1 of the Constitution, it made clear that the integration of the party and the state is very close. It's not only in the US, actually, that there are cases dealing with the coronavirus. There are also cases in China against the US on the basis of the, on the basis of the conspiracy theories that the virus was introduced into China by the US. I think there are at least two cases in Chinese courts against the US. Dapo, I think that makes it all the more real that if the US did amend its legislation or impose some kind of waiver on its courts, that there would be reciprocal action immediately and effectively in China. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then coming back to the ICJ, the, the one point that I just wanted to make on the ICJ to go back to what Marco was saying is that unlike the cases in domestic courts that would be for compensation, any use of the ICJ, I don't think the, the point would be for compensation. I think the point would be to try to do a couple of things. One, it would be to try to establish some kind of narrative as to who is to blame and as to what happened. And then the second point would be to try to establish some kind of clarity as to when those obligations under the international health regulations actually arise. So I, I don't think it'd be a compensation issue. I can hear all the 15 judges of the ICJ yeah. hiding in their closets right now. <laughs> Marco, I mean, as always, terminally afraid. <laughs> exactly. Terminally afraid that any such case will actually come to them. I mean... For everybody's sake, I hope not. They will try to prove you wrong, Marco. <laughs> hey, we ended the previous podcast with the question, what news risks going off the radio because all of this focus on the coronavirus? And then Dapo raised the issue of the US indictment of Nicolas Maduro. So what shall we talk about this week? Shall we shift our attention from Geneva to Rome, from the WHO to the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization? to discuss the international regulation of that other disastrous plague currently affecting East Africa, locusts. Or more depressing news, Libya, once invaded under the banner of the responsibility to protect, which is now becoming a playground in which the world's great powers test their newest weapons. Or are you in for some more positive news, Saudi Arabia abolishing the death penalty for minors? Or is there a juicy court case that we may have missed and that international lawyers can chew on for hours and hours? One case that fits in that category, Sarah, has been written about on the blog by Matthew Happold. It's a recent English High Court case called A Local Authority and AG, and it brings to life a clash between diplomatic immunity and children's rights. 
So the brief facts are that there's a family with six children living in London and their father is a serving diplomat here. There were credible and disturbing allegations that the three youngest children were being physically abused at home by the mother and father. These allegations were made by one of the children themselves, the school and a social worker. And the local authority went to court to seek a child protection order. And of course, the parents invoked diplomatic immunity. Now, why were both parents able to do this? Well, under the Vienna Convention, the serving diplomat, of course, enjoys immunity from civil jurisdiction, except for very narrow exceptions that don't apply in such a case as this. But so do the members of their family forming part of their household, as long as that diplomat remains in post in the United Kingdom. So as the judge observed in that case, This gave rise to a seemingly irreconcilable clash between two international treaties incorporated into English law, the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations and the European Convention on Human Rights. And you can really tell in the language of the judgment that the judge agonised over this decision, but he ultimately held that diplomatic immunity prevailed and that no protection order could be made in favour of these children. He said that we couldn't read down the Vienna Convention to include a tacit exception for safeguarding the children of diplomats. Now, there, of course, are other options. There could have been a waiver by the state that the diplomat came from, which is very uh, rare to happen in such cases, or the UK could have declared this diplomat persona non grata. But all that would happen would mean that he would and his family would leave home and uh, return to the country of origin, and that would not actually help the children uh, in any concrete way. The thing that's really interesting about this case is that it raises the tension between human rights and immunity in a different way from all the other cases that we have had on this before. In all of the other cases that we had before, whether in domestic courts or even at the International Court of Justice, like the Germany-Italy case, the question was whether or not um, the the court of the forum had an obligation to provide a remedy for a human rights abuse by another state. In this particular case, it's the court of the state concerned, the UK, that will itself be violating human rights if it accords immunity. I uh, I, I think it's a really fascinating case. It's it's also a relatively short case. I mean, one can go through it uh, uh, relatively quickly. Um, but it also raises two sort of separate questions of normative conflict. So one is this issue of whether the Vienna Convention prohibits UK courts from exercising jurisdiction. And, you know, the, what about the, the sort of the interaction between the Vienna Convention in that regard and the European Convention on Human Rights or the Convention on the Rights of the Child? On the other hand, there's a more acute situation. Forget the courts, Right. What if a British policeman was walking past the house of the diplomats as they were lashing their children, right? Would the policeman in that situation, not the courts, right? Would the constable have to break in to save the children? And the the judge actually sort of touches upon that scenario in paragraphs uh, 44, 45 of the judgment, you know, talking about what if... There was a genuine emergency. There was clear evidence that the child uh, within the home of a diplomat was at risk of imminent death or serious harm. And he says, 
you know, I do not express a view on this scenario other than to state that it gives rise to a virtually insoluble dilemma. And it seems to him that an amendment to the convention is necessary at the very minimum to address this scenario. And I think this is fascinating, right? So this is a really a question of normative conflict between two different bodies of, of, of international law. And one can think about that acute scenario really in, in four different ways, or, uh, you know, one can think of four different sort of solutions. Uh, one would be to create an implicit exception in the VCDR, which the court was not prepared to do for its own jurisdiction, right? But you could read a, a, an exception to immunity or inviolability to protect the life of another person directly, you know? And in fact, if you, if you look at the Tehran hostages judgment of the ICJ, that's what the ICJ sort of said, you know? Uh, or you could say, no, we should still, you know, do what, what he did with regard to jurisdiction. You know, human rights, positive obligations should kept, be kept in their own uh, narrow bounds and, and not uh, ask the state to violate international law. A third option would be to say, actually, we have those circumstances precluding wrongfulness, like distress or necessity, you know. It might be wrongful to barge into the, the diplomat's house to protect a child, but the wrongfulness would be precluded uh, uh, through necessity or distress. And a fourth option is to say what he said, there's a virtually insoluble dilemma. There's a, an unresolvable norm conflict, whatever the state does, it will violate one obligation under international law, and then it simply has to choose um, which one to violate. And uh, an interesting analogy to this case is actually something that already happened well, one, one uh, semi-hypothetical case and one actual case. Uh, one is uh, the, what happened to Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Had Turkish authorities known at the time when he was being uh, assassinating, uh, assassinated, would they actually have been permitted and or obliged to enter the consulate to save his life? And another case, which I actually um, people may have missed, but which is adorable, is that uh, it happened last summer. A protest was taking place uh, in front of the Bahraini embassy in London. One of the protesters climbed on top of the embassy. The um, uh, some embassy staff apparently used sticks to try to throw the guy off the roof. Um, as that was going on, this is all filmed on camera. The British police, uh, bless them, they barge into the embassy without any permission or consent to save the guy's life, which they do. And then the Bahrainis don't protest that. They say, we're grateful for the cooperation of, of the British authorities uh, in the matter. And Miles Jackson wrote a very nice blog post. So I think it's a really fascinating set of case studies on interaction between immunities and human rights. So if this is a coincidence, the same thing happened last discussion we had. We had a full discussion on the coronavirus and then in other news, we end with immunity. Now, if this was a medical immunity, it would be a beautiful end of the story. No, we, we have a virus and then we have immunity. But, yeah, I wish but, we all had it. I, I suggest that since we're not talking about medical immunity, we just continue our conversation. And I think in the next podcast, we will have more coronavirus because it's impossible not to discuss it but for sure we'll discuss another aspect of the international legal aspects of the virus and the approach or the responses to the virus and we will also have for sure it seems uh, some immunity case or something uh, interesting with respect to immunity and we will have much 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 more thanks for tuning in 
To stay up to date with what's happening in the world of international law and to listen to previous episodes of the podcast, visit egiltalk.org.